Good morning. It is good to see you all out on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, I was, we were talking a little bit ago as we were preparing and praying as elders uh, for the morning and as we begin with small talk a little bit each time and uh, one, uh, Steve, I think, was talking about this will be the warmest opening day of deer season uh, he can ever remember. So I praise the Lord for that. I love warm fall days, and we're thankful for that, and we're looking forward to this week. Uh, if you'll take your bulletin out, as, before we get too far in, take your bulletin out, turn it, just flip it over, and turn straight to the page that has the uh, matching boiler and debt reduction uh, graphic there. I haven't made comment of this for a little while, but I'm going to make comment of it today. We are at $85,000 raised towards the matching funds, and we should praise the Lord for that. Uh, What a great testimony of God's goodness working through us. Uh, We obviously enjoy, I I said I love warm days, uh, but I also like warm auditoriums. And uh, we praise the Lord for that, that we're able today to enjoy a warm auditorium because the needed funds had come in for the boiler. The boiler project is complete, and you are enjoying the benefit of it. And as we continue to reach out towards the end of that $100,000 of matching money that was given already, uh, we're so excited that here we are, we're in the middle of November and uh, we only have 15000 less than $15,000 to go by the end of the year. Praise the Lord for that. And I just want to take a few moments for us just to exalt his name uh, for the provision that he's given to us. So let's do that this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are a needy people. And when we think of the boiler project and the debt reduction and all the work that is being done, uh, here we are grateful for the evidence of your blessing the evidence of progress being made, and the use that you have allowed us to participate in, that you have used us as believers, a fellowship together, to be stewards of the resources that you have provided to us. Lord, as we seek to be wise stewards, not only of the resources, but of all of the assets, including our building that you have given to us, we pray that we would do it in a recognition of your great will and accomplish what you have desired for us to accomplish. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we can celebrate this milestone of $85,000 raised. It is significant for us, and we exalt you and we thank you for it. As we think over the last three years of funds that you have brought in for various and important projects and debt reduction, we are in awe. Pray that that would be our attitude as we continue in song in a few moments and we continue in your word, that the awe that we experience and understand of you would be increasing, that we would focus our attention solely on your goodness and your mercy and your grace, all of your attributes combined, that we would be in awe of you. Lord, we think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And as he is brought into this throne room and he is given this magnificent display, he falls on his face and he says, Woe, I am a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. Lord, we feel much like that today. So I pray that you would allow us to glorify you as you work in us 
that your name would be exalted among the nations. And we give you the glory and the honor for all of these things. And it's in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen. This morning, as Scott mentioned, we do move into an important text, a a very appropriate text for our day and age. If you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is one of those texts that as a pastor, you preach because it's in the text. Uh, You move through and you're working through a passage and you say, if I could avoid this topic or do it on my terms, that would be, uh, at least selfishly, that would be better. But it's not in my terms. It is something that we come along in the text of Scripture and it is very, very appropriate for our age today. In fact, as I was preparing for this week, in the same week of news headlines, just on a very popular, well-known website uh, for news, there was articles from teachers committing, and these are female teachers, committing heinous acts with teenage boys in sexual immorality. Down the list a little bit, you'll see other teachers who have discovered that their salaries are not enough to live on as teachers, and so they've joined one of the well-known sites, websites out there to pose for those who are luring at them and millions of dollars to be made. And then, counter to all of that, there's an actress, 39 years old, who's yet a virgin. And those who are interviewing are stunned by that revelation. Those were all the headlines, really, of just two or three days at the end of the week. We live in a world that is charged with sexual tension in many ways, and Scripture does not leave that to our own explorations. Scripture is very clear on the issue of sexual immorality and the proper use of God's design for the sexual relationship, and it is most appropriate for us then, as Paul gets into the practice of sanctification, which is the will of God, for Paul to then focus on this issue that is so charged in our day and age. Remember, as Paul is writing, he is writing from Corinth. Just outside of the city of Corinth, as he is thinking back to Thessalonica, and we recognize the Thessalonians are in the shadow of Mount Olympus. Sexual immorality was not as prevalent there as it was in Corinth, but it was certainly there. But as Paul is writing from Corinth, he's writing in the shadows of the temple to Epaphrodites. There's a thousand male and a thousand female escorts who serve those who come in to the temple of Epaphroditus. Sexual immorality is prevalent everywhere Paul looks. I've often said that it's not fair. It's not fair for young men growing up in our day and age with images so blatantly and openly before their faces. It was different probably as uh, the older you are, the less you saw of that when you were younger, but it was certainly still there. There was places for you to obtain uh, visual evidence and practice sexual immorality if that was the course. But we recognize that Paul's day wasn't fair either. So let us not believe that our day is more difficult than Paul's day, because it is not. But let us then be faithful students of the Word of God as we begin to understand the will of God, what is the will of God 
We turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we focus on this idea, holiness has to be meticulously worked out in the day-to-day context of the believer's life. While Paul is going to narrow in on sanctification and then narrow a little bit closer into sexual faithfulness, Paul reminds us that this is the will of God that you be sanctified. And this is where we must meticulously work out in the day-to-day context of the believer's life sanctification, holiness. And so we begin then in the text that is before us, and let me begin by reading verse 3 and following through. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 1 because it gives us the context of this week. Beginning in verse 1, the scripture says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. These are strict and direct warnings as we begin to move into understanding the will of God. And that is our first point, the will of God. In order to know the will of God, we have to understand God's will. And after The transition of the first two verses of this chapter, Paul now begins the instruction for living out godliness. He's been in prayers most of the first three chapters of the book of 1 Thessalonians. He has scattered throughout those prayers some very critical Christian living principles that now he's drawing out. And one of those is sanctification. Paul has been in prayer that the believers would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord's calling on them. And so now Paul is pulling that out and he's saying, what is it that pleases God? Isn't that an important question for the believer to ask? You've been saved by grace through faith. Now what? What pleases the God who saved me by his blood by the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. What is it that pleases a God who so loved me that while I was yet an enemy, not seeking him, he sought me. How do I now respond to that? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that our reasonable act of worship is to be living sacrifices. We are to be those who recognize the price that was paid for our salvation and therefore what we must now do about it. We did not seek God, he sought us. And in him seeking us, we have been, if you know Christ as Savior, we have been redeemed. If you do not yet know Christ as Savior, you are being sought after by our great God. And he brings the satisfaction of the wrath that you deserve because of the blood of Christ. It's a free gift if you accept it by grace through faith. Paul 
then brings us to this very critical question. The Thessalonian believers, what must you do to please God? To the Byron Center believers, what must you do to please God? It is comforting to me that when we move through the pages of Scripture, that we find at least on ten different occasions, ten different subjects, that we are told what the will of God is. The will of God is very clearly spelled out for us, and as Scott said a few moments ago, in principle. And so what are those? I'm going to give them to you somewhat quickly here as we understand God's will, and they're not on the screen, but I'm going to repeat them for you again. So I'm going to give them to you, and then we'll come back. There are at least 10 specific instructions given in Scripture that are called the will of God. The first is salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, salvation. Second, sacrifice. That's the one I mentioned a few moments ago in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, sacrifice. Three, that we live spirit-controlled lives. Spirit-controlled lives, Ephesians 5, 17 through 21. Four, that we live in sanctification. That's the one we're studying here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, or uh, really through 8 this morning. Five, the fifth one, that we live in submission. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 15. The sixth one, that we are those who are satisfied in the Lord. Satisfied in the Lord. This is what we will study in the next chapter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Psalms 103, 21 says that we are to be serving. It is the will of the Lord that we serve the Lord. 8, that we suffer for righteousness' sake. Well, that's an odd will of the Lord. Well, it is the refinement that comes through suffering. And it is the will of the Lord that we suffer for righteousness. 1 Peter 3, 17. And it is the will of the Lord that we are shepherding and being shepherd, shepherded, if that's a word. That we are being overseen by faithful shepherds, 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 2. Briefly, again, salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Spirit-controlled, Ephesians 5, 17 through 21. Sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4, where we're at. Submission, 1 Peter, 3, or 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. Satisfied in the things of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Serving, Psalms 103, verse 21. Suffering, 1 Peter 3, 17. And shepherding, 1 Peter 5, 2. Those are all statements of what is the will of God for you. There have been many times, I remember as a teenager, it was a constant prayer. What is God's will for me? Those are major life decisions being made in those years as a teenager. What am I going to do? How am I going to serve the Lord? And so my mind would be consumed with these things when 
we need to be those who turn to the pages of Scripture and let the will of God be laid out for us. And so that's why I gave specific and special time to understand those ten. Because Scripture says this is the will of God. In principle, these ten principles will guide you in the direction and the course you need to go. And then Paul gets a little more specific for us. Paul's instruction in this chapter serves to remind us of the call to please God through our obedience to his will. And notice what he says in verse 3. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul could have stopped there and we would say, amen. There's a lot to learn. Sanctification is being set apart for the work of God. This We'll talk about it in just a moment in more detail, but this uh, positional place where believers are given and a progressive place where we have to be working out the details of it. So we could say, wow, Paul has done an amazing bit of instruction and insight into the character of God in reminding us that the will of God is our sanctification, but then he goes further and he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. He says this is the theological truth, here's the practical truth of how it's lived out. We recognize that there are two elements of the Spirit's work of sanctification in our lives. The first is a positional sanctification. This is what we, see, we receive at the moment of salvation. And Paul deals with this, and we're going to get there in 2 Thessalonians in the weeks to come. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul deals with our positional sanctification. That is, when you've come to know Christ as Savior, you are uh, those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ the Father sees Christ when he sees you. That's positional sanctification. You can't lose that. It's yours. But there is the second element of sanctification, and this is the one that Paul is dealing with in 1 Thessalonians, and that is progressive sanctification. This is the day-to-day -day pursuit of holiness in the believer's life. This means that you and I are to meticulously be those who pay attention to the day-to-day -day walk with our Savior. Every moment, every thought taken captive. This is what reminds us to pursue Christ's likeness in everything that we say and do and grow more and more like our Savior every moment. This is our response to the great love of Christ. This is reasonable. This is a living sacrifice. One who is set apart from the things of the world, set apart for the purpose of becoming a living sacrifice. And as we shared last Sunday night and last Sunday evening as we were dealing with the function of the church, we dealt with this passage a little bit there. In dealing with that, it is uh, an oxymoron to say that you are a living sacrifice. Sacrifices aren't living, if you've noticed through the Old Testament. Sacrifices in the Old Testament die all the time. But because of the blood of Christ, you are a, to be a living sacrifice. That is this progressive sanctification, progressively, day by day, being set apart for the work of God in our life. And that cannot be done in your own effort. But you are responsible for it. It is the will of God that you be sanctified. Paul begins to help us with this in just a moment, but we want to understand the beauty of sanctification. Before we move on, progressive sanctification is to reflect our position 
of being in Christ. You are a city on a hill, a light shining. You are salt in a tasteless world. Because of sanctification, at least that is the immediate outflow of your growth in Christ, it's because of the Spirit's work in you that you are that. But how do you become that? How do you really look like a light, a city on a hill, shining in the darkness? That is the work of sanctification that the Spirit of God is doing in cooperation with your obedience. As we reflect on the Lord and we reflect the Lord, we recognize that sanctification is to emulate the holiness of God. Sanctification is to emulate what we read in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah falls on his face and he says, Woe, I am a man of unclean lips. That should be the testimony of every single believer. How dare we enter into the presence of God believing we have a right to stand there without falling on our face. And yet, because of Christ, our positional sanctification means that in purity we stand there. But in the progressive elements of the day-to-day living, let us also be set apart for that purpose. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that motivates us to pursue the reflection of God and the wonder and the beauty of holiness. Paul's going to highlight this as we move through the text that is before us. And he's going to remind us of the beauty of the sanctification, the beauty of being followers of God, and the beauty of holiness. If we grew up in in certain Christian groups, and perhaps you have, or you have a poor understanding of holiness, you may believe that holiness or some sort of Christian concoction of holiness is legalism, and there are certainly a lot of those elements out there where we as Christians have made legalistic things that we have said this is in the pursuit of holiness. Paul's not dealing with those. Instead, Paul is dealing with true holiness and true sanctification. Because we must understand the difference between legalism and holiness. The difference between obedience because of a command and the obedience because of the love of God. That's the difference. Why do I want to obey God? Why do I want to follow his principles? Why do I want to live those out? It is not because of some legalistic guidelines. It is because I can do nothing less in obedience to the great love of my Savior. That's a big difference. Why do you do what you do? Why do you dress up on Sunday morning? Why do you appear in the auditorium on Sunday morning? Why do you pray over your meal at Culver's after Sunday morning or wherever you go? Why do you do those things? Why do you live out Christianity? Is it out of some legalistic guidelines Or is it out of a response of the love of Christ demonstrated to you and you being a living sacrifice back? Let us make sure that in the Christian life we are not pursuing a pseudo sense of sanctification. I'm going to live this way because I want everybody to see me living Christ-like. Instead of saying, I'm going to live this way because I could do nothing less, because of the love of Christ that has bought me out of the slave market of sin, redeemed me and given me eternity with my Savior 
the craving of my soul satisfied. Let's, me, let's understand the two drives and let's follow sanctification for the love of God demonstrated to you. The desire to please God as living sacrifices rather than some legalistic system. Paul's call for sanctification is direct, it's simple, and it's very appropriate for our age. Sanctification for the believer requires that we abstain. Listen carefully. It requires that we abstain from sexual immorality. In light of this, the command touches on premarital and extramarital sex, pornography, homosexuality, transsexuality, adultery, incest, bestiality, casual sex, just to name a few. We could go on and on and on and on. Anything that is a deviation from God's design for the sexual relationship between one man and one woman committed together for life in marriage is sexual immorality. The command requires our obedience, and it has enormous implications for our good. To abstain means to hold oneself off of. In other words, what Paul is saying to us is we are reading this along with the readers who were in the church at Thessalonica. What Paul is saying is every single believer must be Joseph to Potiphar's wife. We must be those who flee from sexual immorality. And we must treat it as Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. And you say, well, I don't really struggle with this. Well, Paul reminds us that there's at least some element in which we all must flee. For women, it may be different than men, but we recognize that it is still prolific in our society, and it is prolific in the church. And so we must call it out, and Paul does. And he says to us that we are to abstain from immorality. Beginning in verse 4, Paul now helps us understand what this looks like. He's told us this is the will of God, sanctification, he says one element of sanctification is that you live outside or you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he gets specific. As if we didn't want to leave it there. He says, I want to get all the way into the details of this because we need to understand this. It's too easy to pass it by. In verse 4, we recognize this, that each one of you must know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. We must be those within Christianity, who practice self-control. Human sexuality is a significant theme in the pages of Scripture, and it's usually seen in the negative. In fact, as we read through the, all of the Old Testament, we read many times over and over and over sexual sins that were committed by those who are followers of God, such as David, and those who are rebels against the things of God. It impacts humanity. When sex has not been tainted by sin, it is very, very good, and it is God's original design from before sin entered into the created order. It is God's design when he created man and woman and brought them together. And so when sex is shared between one man and one woman in a lifetime commitment of marriage, that is very good. But even then, we have sin pervading into those relationships, and we must be those who 
exercise self-control. Sinful perversions of the sexual relationship are rampant. For our good, believer, flee from every form of sexual deviation and immorality. Every form. Do not believe in any way that that one little clip or that one little ad that you see that pops up on your search with Google or wherever you're searching is innocent. It is not. Don't believe that that one line that you've read in that romance novel is innocent because it is not. Let us be those who flee from sexual deviation and immorality. Paul helps us in the midst of a sexual deviant age to abstain from sexual immorality. He helps us to understand what it looks like. And the first expression of that is that we must control our own body. There is much debate over what Paul is referencing here in the text with the term body. And some have actually, some of your translations probably say vessel instead of body. Well, I think that's kind of the middle of the road. And I don't, that's, there's nothing wrong with that translation per se, but it's not very clear either. And I think Paul is being more clear than this. The idea of vessel is because it could mean that one is to control his own spouse, his own wife, or it could mean, depending on the grammatical construction, one is to control his own body. And so that is the debate, and some have translated it vessel to kind of find right in the middle of the road there. But I think Paul is directly referring to our own body because he's not referring to only those who are married and saying only those who are married should be those who pursue Uh, fidelity in the sexual relationship. He's saying all believers are to flee from sexual immorality. And so the weight of the context and the, the grammatical construction of this, I believe Paul is referring to the body, that your body must be in self-control. Each believer must possess their own body in holiness and honor. And I take us all the way back to that little child song you remember from Sunday school days when you were just a little tiny child. Be careful little eyes what you see. Isn't it amazing the profound reality of the theology in those few words? Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. Because the Father up above is looking down with love. Believer, you have something that the ungodly world does not have. And Paul's going to get to it in just a minute. And it speaks to the beauty of our sanctification. You know the Father of love. You know the one who purchased you from the slave market of sin. And you know that he has called you to his design. Not Satan's design for sex. but God's design for the sexual relationship. Every believer must possess their own body in holiness and honor because that is reasonable in light of what Christ has done for us. This, be careful little eyes what you see, such a childish song, but what a powerful reminder of our need to obey the Spirit of God in controlling our own bodies. And so that is the first element of this. Abstain from immorality. We are to practice self-control. 
We are to restrain lusts. Restrain lusts. The second bit of instruction comes in contrast to the sanctification of the believers as Paul begins to write. Because notice what he says in verse 4, rather in verse 5, he says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. So your sanctification is being lived out in self-control, whereas the passion of the Gentiles, this word for Gentiles means unbelievers, pagans, those who are outside of the things of God, says their passions, their lusts are out of control. The believer's position of sex is reserved for marriage and only in marriage in God's design between a man, one man, and one woman. It seems novel to a world that allows their passions to run wild. How could that be? How could you ever do those things? Christians should be able to control their own body, which is in contrast with the ungodly who are ruled by the wild passions because they do not know God. It is important that we understand that the ungodly world, Paul has drawn this out for us. He's called you to sanctification, to self-control, the submission to the Spirit of God in your life, and he's called you to avoid the godlessness of the pagans. What a stark contrast when we think of something as simple as a website that you can click onto. No one else knows. Or you've picked up a book that draws you in to the imagery and the elements that allows your mind to wander into sexual immorality. So, well, no one knows. No one's impacted. We'll see that that is not the case. At least that's what our finite thinking, our fleshly thinking believes. We don't think at that moment that, wow, these are the passions of the godless. That's what Paul calls them. We are to be those who restrain these lusts. The ungodly world does not know God. The world will get worse and worse in its sexual deviation and its proclamation of it. In fact, just so you know, in the same articles that came out this past week, you, as a religious conservative, one who follows after the principles that are taught in the words of Scripture, are enemy number one for certain movie stars who are participating in a homosexual lifestyle. You're their enemies. Why? Because you are those who are to practice self-control. You are those to restrain the lusts. And as the world becomes worse and worse in sexual deviation, they have refused to acknowledge the God who made them, and they they are refusing to acknowledge the way that God made them. Not only that He made them, but the way that God made them. To the point that we don't know what gender we are. And it will get worse. What's also fascinating and needs to be drawn out in this text is Paul is not calling out Christians to go out and be those who knock down, challenge, and uh, really rail against those who are practicing this deviant lifestyle. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be those who are calling sin, sin. We are. But Paul is saying, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you stop. You stop practicing sexual immorality. You stop practicing sexual deviation. You start pursuing sanctification. Let's begin there. And that's where Paul has us this morning. We should also be those who are aware of the costs. 
aware of the damage that is done. Why? This is an important question. Why should we be concerned with sexual purity? After all, the world has no concerns for these things. The only concerns are how it will affect my health, will I get a uh, sexually transmitted disease, will I have consequences, and so now you tie in abortion and you tie in all of these things, and the world is trying to remove all of those, all of those consequences. And it lends itself to the question, why should we be concerned with sexual purity? After all, it seems that nothing is off limits for the godless world around us. Why should we be concerned? Paul may have had in mind the sexual sin that was present in Corinth, as he's writing verse 6. Not the temple to Epaphrodites, but rather the sexual deviation that he calls out in 1 Corinthians, it's in the church, where the son was now having relation, sexual relationships with his mother or his stepmother, perhaps. That was the sexual sin that Paul says is not even named among the pagans. Not even the pagans are going that far. Paul may have had that in mind as he may have been dealing with that in the church at the time that he's writing the book of 1 Thessalonians. Regardless, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. We're going to stop there for a moment. So Paul has moved from the passions of the Gentiles and he's now looking into this term where he uses brother. Those who engage in sexual immorality, whatever Paul was considering as the backdrop of this, those who engage in sex, sexual immorality defraud others, specifically in the household of God. You say, but nobody saw that. Nobody observed the pornography that I observed with me. Nobody read the book that led my mind down paths of sexual immorality and fantasies. This is a challenging portion of a challenging text. This is the most difficult. We've reached the, the most difficult, perhaps, of any of the practical living that Paul addresses in the book of 1 Thessalonians. But the context, again, being the ultimate authority that we look to, we need to understand that sexual immorality in the body of Christ is not limited to personal choices and personal impact. Sexual deviation that is committed by a member of the body of Christ impacts every other member of the body of Christ. And Paul says that it defrauds the body. That it defrauds the body. It takes advantage of and defrauds the body. And my translation here in the ESV says transgress, that is to take advantage of, and to wrong, that is to defraud his brother. The idea that Paul has, and he's specifically addressing to you and I, is that sexual immorality of any kind negatively impacts, it takes advantage of, and it defrauds other believers and non-believers alike. Just for a moment, let us entertain how that may be. Let's say that you have been one who is engaged in what you have determined in your fleshly thinking as an innocent, 
foray into pornography and you say no one else has even seen it. Well, it immediately affects your children. It affects your relationship with your spouse. And it also begins to affect the way that you use your giftedness within the body of Christ. And therefore, every single believer that you encounter and every single believer that you would have impacted and the impact of that impact has been negatively affected because you're walking in sin away from sanctification, away from the things of the Lord. We see it over and over and over as even an ungodly world is dealing with suddenly this great influx of the availability of sexual immorality. And as that influx has increased, we have seen the society decrease. And it affects the church. You say, well, nobody knows. That is not true. You know that you violated the holiness of God. And notice that is exactly where Paul takes us as he reminds us that God is the judge. Verse 6. The end of verse 6, but let's read it all. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you before. However long Paul was with the Thessalonian believers, which was a very short period of time, three weeks that is recorded, not very long, during that three weeks, Paul was so concerned about this issue that after salvation is proclaimed, after believers are made, that is that saints have been turned from sinners. So sinners were there when Paul arrives in Thessalonica. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you have saints who are there. Paul's next message within the next few weeks is that they should practice sexual purity. And he warns them that God is an avenger because now he returns to that and he says, I've already told you beforehand and I've solemnly warned you, don't engage in sexual immorality. Paul points to a list of three reasons, and this is the first of them. I kind of divided them to the next point as well. But the first of three reasons why we are to avoid sexual immorality that is outside of its natural consequence within the body of Christ is the first is that God will judge these matters. These do not pass God's notice just because you get by with it. For a few times. Does not mean that it passes God's notice. And it is interesting that Paul uses the word avenger or judge, as some of your translations say. Probably the best word to be used is punisher of these things. God will punish those who practice sexual deviation. It seems as if so much. Sexual deviation gets a pass today. And indeed, we see an increase of immorality. We see it every moment. It used to be that you would never see it on a TV program, maybe a, a reference once in a while. And then it came into movies, and then it came into the sitcoms, and now it's into the commercials. You can't even watch commercials of a clean show without seeing it. It's everywhere. God 
is the avenger of sexual deviation. Paul says you are forewarned. Sexual immorality, even committed when no one else is watching, will be judged by the Lord. And there is an immediacy to that. There is that growing distance. When you know that you have committed sexual immorality, you begin to distance yourself from others who can hold you accountable. You begin to grow more angry with those who do hold you accountable. And you begin to be less effective in the body of Christ. And God is the avenger. But we also recognize that that is one of the three reasons to avoid sexual immorality that Paul concludes this section with. But he also reminds us that we are been called to holiness. And this is where the other two come together. We are those who must pursue, we must pursue holiness. Notice what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I think it's very important for us because we are a people, naturally, who tend to rebel. We tend to push back when somebody says, do this. We go, I'm not doing that. We naturally have that tendency. It's part of our sinful tendency most often, we naturally have that tendency to say, well, wait, uh, pastor, I understand this is in the word of God, but come on. I see all, everybody else doing this, engaged in this. Paul turns, and I appreciate the way that Paul writes this, not just because it's in the pages of scripture, which is why ultimately the reason I most appreciate it, but ultimately because it also answers one of these questions that we have. What else? What else? Why? God's the avenger, but I look around and I see people passing by who are actively engaged. There's a reason that teachers can quit their jobs and, and even continue in their jobs and go onto these sites and, and make millions of dollars posing and doing acts that are sinful and deplorable sexual immorality. They seem to get by with it for the most part. And they are rewarded through profit. What else, Paul? You and I have been called to holiness, and you and I have been called to pursue holiness. Paul continues with his list of reasons to avoid sexual immorality by pointing us back to the God who saved us. What does God think? We started there, but it's pretty easy after the list that Paul has walked us through. It's pretty easy for us to say, I know the will of God is my sanctification, and he's calling me to abstain from sexual immorality. I'll get around to that someday. Paul says, no, 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 no. We are to be those who pursue holiness. Why? Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. There's this rebellious heart in us. And it's often seen in kids who've grown up in church. We see it. It's not just them. I'm just going to pick on them for just a moment. They've grown up in the church, and as they grow to adulthood, they begin to say, well, everybody around me used to live this way, but I'm going to live this way. Beloved, what a vain argument. I know that I've been called to live in holiness, but I didn't see much result in that, and so I'm going to live different by living exactly the same as the rest of the world. What a vain argument. Paul says, 
you have been called to holiness. It is not that you're rebelling against the church when you walk away from the things of holiness. It is that you walk away from the things of God. You walk away from your Creator. We'll get there in just a moment in the cost of disregard, which is our last point. But we need to understand that if you're called to sanctification and holiness, if God is the one who's called you to that, He did not call you to impurity. You do not have to go the course of the world. You have a choice. The ungodly don't have that choice. The ungodly must choose ungodliness. They can be moral and ungodly, but they must choose ungodliness. You who know Jesus as Savior do not have that same limitation. You can choose holiness, and you must choose holiness. God did not call us to impurity. And we need to also understand that if you've been called to purity and sanctification and holiness, then the Lord is going to provide for you this, His Spirit. We are not called to do this on our own effort. You are called to sanctification. You cannot do that on your own. But in obedience to the Spirit's work in your life, you can live sanctified lives in sexual deviation like we see today that's prolific in our world. It would be possible for you to be Joseph in a completely ungodly world. It is possible through the work of the Spirit of God. You are not called to impurity, but to holiness. The third great truth that we find here as we're pursuing holiness, first is that God did not call you to impurity. The second is that if God has called you to holiness and sanctification, he's given you his spirit. Third, if God gives us the spirit, then not only we are not only in uh, sexual immorality when we disobey God, but we're in complete disobedience. So there is the opposite as well. We are to pursue sanctification and we are to avoid sexual immorality. If the Spirit of God, if God has given to us His Spirit, we are actively rejecting the Spirit when we choose to follow the things of the world. We can follow the things of the Lord. If God has called us to holiness in our sexuality, listen carefully. If God has called us to holiness in our sexuality, His design for sexuality, His purpose behind it is better for us is what we really need. And we recognize, especially in this issue, how much more valuable it is to follow God's design. Even the ungodly world, as much as they celebrate ungodliness, as much as they celebrate all of the fornication and everything that they're participating in, at the end of the day, you'll find articles and statements like married Conservative Christians have more fulfilling relationships, new study says. There's a reason for that. And it ought to be true. I tell young couples who are about ready to be married, we save the sexual discussion until the last day before the wedding. Usually the rehearsal morning, we deal with issues of 
uh, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And I've said this over and over and over to them. And I'm going to say it to you. The sexual relationship by God's design is as close to heaven on earth as we're going to get. It's not heaven. Heaven's far greater. But it's as close as we're going to get when we walk with the Lord. Or it will be as close to hell on earth as we will get until we're separated from this life. Beloved, God's design for the sexual relationship is the best design. Satan is the one who's deceived. Satan is the one who's deceiving. Satan's deviations of God's design may appear to be pleasing in the moment, but the consequences and the price of that are devastating. Are devastating. And some of that is our last point this morning, the cost of disregard. Verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The rebellious ones, and I've ministered to some who are like this. I've ministered to husbands who have rejected the truths of sexual purity. I've ministered to young people who have rejected the truths of sexual purity. I've ministered to uh, all ages, it doesn't matter, it's, it's, it's an issue that affects every single person, a single, married, it affects us all. It's important that we understand that to reject holiness is to reject God, who gave us the Spirit of God. The word for disregard has a sense of finality. Those who walk this path have demonstrated a pattern of a counterfeit faith for those who do it over and over and over and over again. The one who lives in immorality rejects God's spirit, God's will, God's call, God's word, and God's pleasure. I find it fascinating that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and in essence he is saying here, at least in one part, while the focus is on disregarding uh, the things of the Lord, he says, don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Those who disregard this instruction are not disregarding the pulpit. They're not disregarding the person behind the pulpit. And there may be in the crowd that's here today or the ones watching online, there may be those who are saying, I don't believe you, Pastor Chad. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, and I'm going to have whatever relationships I want to have anyway. And to that, I would say, you're not disregarding me. You're not disregarding the pulpit. You're disregarding your creator God. The message that is shared is not that you would say, ah, there's an object lesson, there's somebody who, I'm going to disregard him. Let us be careful to understand that by disregarding the call to sexual purity, we are disregarding our creator and his created order. That is not a light assault. Let us be aware that if you're going to disregard God's call to sexual purity, the full weight of what you're actually doing. It is not just between you and the computer screen or you and the book or you and the person. 
or you to another person, you are disregarding your Creator God. What a weighty thing. I find it fascinating that what Paul says here is what David said. Those who have fallen into sexual immorality, perhaps you've already fallen into sexual immorality, those who have fallen into sexuality, sexual immorality must follow David's pattern. Write down Psalm 51. Spend time in Psalm 51. But focus on verse 4. David cries out after being confronted with his sin with Bathsheba and the death of that child. David cries out these words, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David cries out to the Lord and says, Against you and you only have I sinned. That doesn't mean that David says that he didn't sin against Bathsheba or against the child that was created in that union. What David is saying is that the first and preeminent sin that I have committed is against my great God. In practicing sexual deviation, sexual immorality, When I should have been out fighting, I was sinning instead. The temptations of sexual deviation are very present in our age. The believer must be meticulous in your day-to-day walk of sanctification. You must submit to the direction and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you are single, keep sex reserved for marriage. It is worth it. God's design is worth it. If you are married, preserve the sanctity of the marriage bed. It's between you and your spouse only. Your thoughts, your actions, your behaviors, all of that belongs to your spouse only. Be lights shining in a dark world. Christian, you practice sexual morality and you will be different in our age. You will be attacked. In our age. But you will have opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Creator God who created sex and marriage for a purpose. Purpose says be lights shining in a dark world. On the issue of sexuality, Christians will stand out from the world boldly and brightly. And so we end where I started. It is the will of God that you be sanctified. And Paul's first line under sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Set apart. Set apart for purity. Set apart for the purposes of God. It is by God's design, and it is for your good. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Let's pray.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the sexual relationship that you have created, that you've given to us to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Lord, we live in a world that is confused. We don't even know societally. We don't even know if we're male or female or none of the above. We don't understand the relationships between one man and one woman except through the pages of Scripture and lived out by the testimony and the example of those who follow your word. And so, Lord, I pray that as Christians assemble here in this room this morning, having heard a message that is just a few moments long compared to the hours and hours and hours they are inundated with sexual immorality that is prolific and prevalent everywhere they look, Pray that you would remind us of the simple child's song. It says, be careful little eyes what you see. Lord, may we then be brought into a better understanding and appreciation of the text that we have studied. That we understand the dire consequences of immorality that runs rampant. The hurt and the heartache. The brokenness in relationships the ineffectiveness in ministry, and in those cases where it involves leaders, specifically the recognition of the disqualifying elements of their ministry that you have called them to. Lord, I pray that we would take these things seriously, knowing that you are the avenger, you are the one who will judge and punish those who are engaged in sexual immorality. Pray that we'd also recognize that it is not the pulpit or it's not the preacher or it's not the spouse or any other one that calls us out for sin, accountability partner or whoever it may be. It is not them that we disregard when we practice sexual immorality. It is you. Lord, lead us in purity. Lead us in holiness. May this congregation, may this group of believers be those who stand out from the rest that we train our children in the proper use of the sexual relationship, that we encourage and strengthen and hold one another accountable, that even the things that we see, the words that we hear, the words that we read in a book, all of these would be held to the standard of sanctification, that we would be those who do your will that we would practice sanctification. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the power of the Spirit of God at work in us that enables us to obey. Now allow us to be those who are meticulous in day-to-day relationships, day-to-day conversations that would drive us to a holy relationship with you. Lord, we love you, and we glorify you in all that we say and do as we continue in song now. May our voices be united in praise, exalting the one who is worthy the only one who is worthy of our praise. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.